Gregory was born in A.D. 330 in Nanzius, a village in the Cappadocian region near Antolia, which is today modern-day Turkey. He's a part of a group of early Christian thinkers called the Cappadocian Fathers, he himself often taking the title the theologian by others. He, along with two brothers, Gregory of Nicaea and Basil of Caesarea, along with Athanasius, helped the early church form a clear and succinct doctrine called the Trinity. Their thinking and biblical commitments were articulated the clearest in the Nicene Creed of 381 A.D., one that we often read together corporately as a congregation and confess as the biblical truth about God. Gregory was a man often given into his desires, the desires of the flesh. Thus, he would often lead an ascetic life seeking to kill sin that was ravaging his soul. But his brilliant mind and thoughtful meditations on the Scriptures helped to forge an alliance that defended against theological error and which helped to fight against the infection of Arius and others that sought to destroy the truth. These particular men had a keen foresight into the future that saw the need for the church to have a position or doctrinal statement that was both given to clarity and theological precision that would stand the test of times. Consider even this morning the things that you have read this week. Whether it be in written form or digital, we often read information that is current. No one reads yesterday's newspapers. Consider this morning that our time has been taken up with reading documents that are thousands of years old. It is a reminder that the truth of God is once for all delivered to the saints. Well, anyways, because of their king insight into the future, they prepared generations to come Generations of Christians who would follow after them, and he, they aided us to rightly defend the doctrine of God against her assailants. Even this morning, we are able to rightly forge against the enemy's attacks on the doctrine of the Trinity because of men like Gregory of Nicaea, Nanzius, rather. His faithfulness to Christ has felt a lasting impact even upon our own gathered worship today. Friend, we prepare for the future based on what we believe will happen in the future. Why was it that these Cappadocian fathers had gave themselves to this? Because they believed in the word that you heard this morning read from 2 Peter chapter 3 that in the end times there will be those who seek to distort the truth. We prepare for the future. If the forecast tells us it's going to rain, we will prepare accordingly. If we know that a stock is going to rise, well, we're going to invest funds in those stocks. We act based on what we believe the future to hold. 
Friend, have you ever considered this particular truth in light of Jesus' imminent return? Do you believe, Christian, that Jesus could return today? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that the Lord could ascend upon, descend upon us. Today we're going to consider this particular truth of the return of Christ, both this week and next week. And our prayer is the prayer of every saint who has gone before us, come Lord Jesus. Friend, Jesus could return today. Would you be ready for that return? Over the last several weeks, we've, we've joined Jesus and his disciples along their journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way to the cross. And along this journey, Jesus has taken up the task of discipling his disciples, preparing them for his quick departure. He's only been with them for three years. And then he'll be gone. He's preparing his church for what life will be like when he's gone. And preparing them for his imminent return. Along their journey, we have thought about several ideas. First, the count, or rather the cost of following him. To follow Jesus, we understand, is a costly task. We've considered the work that we must take up as disciples. And Jesus has also painted a vivid picture of the life of a disciple. One that was to be marked by the word and prayer. Friend, is your life marked by word and prayer? He has even taken time to consider barriers to belief. That along our journey we will come across individuals that are so hardened in their heart towards God that they have grieved or blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that there is no hope for them. And although they had not yet quite understand what it meant, Jesus prepares them for this phrase, I must leave. And so Jesus is getting them ready nonetheless. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. It's found on page 871 in the Pew Bibles. I invite you to find that large number 12 on that page and then try to locate number 35. It's down there towards the bottom of the page. Verse 35. We'll take up there. This is Jesus speaking. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, when, rather, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his house to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that master of that servant will come on that day day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son. And son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. My friend, as we consider this text this morning, it is unified around a central idea. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Jesus' disciples were to be prepared for His return because it would come at any moment. The word imminent comes to mind. As Christians, we are not to give in to frustration as we grow over our Master's long delay, but rather continually remind and refresh ourselves with the truth that Jesus will return in a moment's Notice, he could come right now. That has been the the consistent belief of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for 2,000 years, that Jesus could come in a twinkling of an eye to gather his bride, the church. And if that is true, that Jesus could walk through these doors in, in in a moment's notice, He could gather his church up in a moment's notice without any warning. We must live a life of perpetual preparedness. Perpetual preparedness. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to prepare ourselves. Well, what are we to do? How do we prepare? How do we get ready for the Lord's return? Jesus outlines in this text, I believe, three ways to prepare for his return. Number one, be ready. Verses 35 through 40 has one idea taken forward, you better be ready. You better be ready. Number two, remain faithful. 
remain faithful. And this idea is taken up with the long delay of the Lord. He, he, he hasn't come yet. And so there's going to be a period of time where we have to remain faithful. We have to be ready, remain faithful, and lastly, expect division. Expect division. We ought not to be surprised that the Lord divides. And so, as we wait for the Lord, we will expect division here on earth. Number one, be ready, Jesus says. He begins this section or this teaching there in verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Literally, gird up the loins, pull your pants up, get ready to run. The picture here is of an individual who is dressed for action. He has his big boy pants on and he's ready to run. And his lamp is burning. This idea of the lamp burning is one who has their light prepared. A lamp was prepared so that it would burn all night long. If you uh, lived ever in a, in a part of the country where it was cold at night, you have to prepare the fire in such a way as to last through the night. The picture here is that of someone who is ready for the return of Christ. Who has an expectation of the return of Christ. And Jesus here outlines three reasons to be ready. Number one, he says, because of the great celebration that awaits his return. Look at there in verse 36. He says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Weddings in this particular culture would have lasted weeks on end. Just like Jesus visiting the wedding at Cana. It was a wedding that went on for days on end. And they were to be men waiting for their Lord's return. Look here at the picture that Jesus paints. Be ready, like these servants, so that they may open the door to Him at once when He comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and recline at table and he will come and serve them. The picture here is that of preparedness because of the celebration that awaits. And boy, won't it be a day of celebration? It ought to be our singular joy the picture here is like sleeping with your shoes on. You're so filled with anticipation, you, you, you can't wait to go on vacation. You, you're restless all night, you can't wait because of the great celebration that awaits you. But also we see Jesus says, be ready because of consummation. See, the return of Christ will consummate the kingdom fully. When Jesus came... He inaugurated the kingdom, but the kingdom has not yet fully come. And so we wait for its consummation or completion. The disciples were to be ready for Christ's return because at His return, He would bring about the consummation of all things. The language that Jesus uses here points forward to this reality. This is what the prophets had foretold so many centuries earlier. For example, in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, 
Isaiah prophesies about a time that will be marked by a great banquet and a super abundant harvest. This is what Jesus paints here, doesn't it? There in verse 37. He will come, he'll dress himself for service and and recline at table, and he will come and serve them. There will be a great feast. Isaiah says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Or the prophet Amos, painting a picture not only of a great banquet, but of a superabundant harvest. Behold, the days are coming, Amos said, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall build, rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted, says the Lord your God." There was to be an anticipation of this great consummation. Jesus inaugurating and fulfilling His kingdom. This is why we want Jesus to come. So that He can fully and finally destroy this broken world and usher in new heavens and new earths. Do you notice here in verse 37 that Jesus will come and serve us? What a wonderful picture to think Jesus serving His people. It is a glimpse into heaven, isn't it? Heaven is not just a perpetual worship service as some have so inclined to believe, but is a place of service, serving one another and being served by the risen Christ. We see also there in verse 37 that we need to be ready because we need to have a sense of anticipation about us. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or on the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Luke uses the, the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, day time. This would have been a late evening. And, and we all know what happens when the hours go on. Even though you might be a night owl, you know at some point you have to go to sleep. And if you've ever worked shift work where you have to work at night, those last few hours begin to wear on you and you don't think as clearly and you're not as alert and awake. The disciples were to live as if Jesus would come in a moment's notice. They were to have an anticipation, an expectation. They weren't to grow weary or tired. They were not to give in to discouragement or hopelessness, but have a growing sense that the Lord would return in a moment's notice. And friend, this has been the experience of every Christian who has preceded us. Every generation has lived with a sense of overwhelming anticipation that the Lord is coming again and could come in a moment. This is what Paul reminded the Thessalonians when he, when he said this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
a thief in the night. In other words, he will come unexpectedly. And this is the illustration that Jesus gives there in verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at one hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. This idea is quite clear to us, isn't it? Straightforward. You're sitting there, you know that a robber is going to come and break into your house today at 1230. You're going to say, well, I'm going to be there. I'm waiting for him. But see, this is not how it is with the return of Jesus. And you've seen the fools who have tried to measure the time. The one who said he would come in 1988, and before that, 1982, and before that. We ought not to be given in to measuring the time, but rather entrusting the truth that Jesus could come in a minute. Children scurry about the house cleaning it up because they know that mom and dad are on their way home. They get ready because they know their return could be imminent. Perhaps you've had fun with your children in that way. There is in them an overwhelming sense of anticipation that they know mom and dad could pull into the driveway in a moment's notice. And they don't have the luxury of us so often with modern day apps where we can track where mom and dad is throughout the county. We must be ready, friend. What are you doing to prepare yourself? Do you get it in a twinkling of an eye, in a blink of an eye? Jesus could descend upon us. It is that quickly and and that near to us. I wonder this morning, are we dressed for action, waiting with a sense of celebration at the coming of Christ? It will be a day of rejoicing, my friend, a great day. How sad it would be if we are found doing else than thinking about this return. Do you have a sense of the consummation whereby Jesus will set all things in order? This is our hope in the midst of a broken world. We don't draw out hope that Jesus is somehow making this place, a, this world a better place. That is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not trying to make this world better. Why? Why would, he, why would you renovate your house only to demolish it the next week? That makes no sense at all. Jesus is going to demolish this world at his return. We endure the sorrows and sufferings of this world, not because we are numb to the pain around us, not at all, but because we of the growing sense of a desire to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This happens through changed lives, not changed worlds. And do you believe Jesus could come in a moment? Are you prepared to live this way? Friend, be ready. Jesus could come. And this leads us then to the second point that we find there in verse 41 and 48. Remain faithful. Remain faithful. Peter, of course, like he does so often, asks a probing question of the Lord. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? He thought perhaps this news was only for the crowds. 
Many in Jesus' day thought that when the Messiah came, he would bring a complete consummation of the throne of David, that he would come, set himself on the throne, and finally and fully restore Israel. And so Peter's saying, hey, we're with you, Jesus, until the end, and we know we're always going to be with you, and so you must be talking to the crowds who are going to be condemned and not to us. And Jesus said, no, actually, I'm talking to you just as much as I'm talking to them. Everyone will have to wait, Peter. Everyone will wait on the return of the Lord. Therefore, we ought to see that we need to be motivated to, be, to remain faithful. And Jesus motivates us here to faithfulness. Doesn't Number one, we see that he rewards those who are faithful. The Lord said, who then is this faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Friend, we ought to remain faithful because of the great reward we will receive at the return of Christ. We work for this reward. It it is not that we work for our salvation, but we work for the rewards that, that moths and thieves cannot steal. An eternal reward kept in heaven for us. Again, the language here that Jesus used points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the culmination and consummation of all things of the return of Christ. This is why Paul exhorts the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Though we believe Jesus could come in a moment, we understand that there is a delay. And so we remain faithful. We see also the respect of faithfulness. We ought to remain faithful out of respect for our master. Isn't it quite frightening what he uses here? He says, verse 43, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing. I want you to think for just a moment in the particular sins that you find yourself entangled in. What if Jesus came in the middle of that? What a frightening picture, isn't it? In the midst of your bitterness and resentment, your lack of forgiveness, your lack of love and compassion to others. This is the picture he paints, isn't it? Of one who's like, oh, my master's delayed. I'm just going to turn and start beating on people. I mean, how many church members, you read that, you heard that read, and you're like, hey, that's been my experience of Christianity. That's been my experience of other Christians, getting beat on by other Christians. Friend, let me help you here just just for a moment. Listen, those individuals that beat on you, who have the name of Christ, weren't really Christians. I know your experience with church has been hard. But perhaps your experience was hard because the churches or church that you were a part of was filled with non-Christians who had been masquerading as Christians. This is what Jesus warns of here. He says that master of the servant will come on a day when he does not, verse 46, does not expect him at an hour he does not know. And what does Jesus do? He says, I will cut him into pieces. And put him with whom? The unfaithful, the unbelievers. Those who claim the name of Christ and do not love their brothers will 
face a greater punishment in hell than those who never claim to be Christians and punished others. You understand that, right? With much is given, much will be required. This is why Jesus ends on that note in verse 47 and 48 that the responsibility of faithfulness is ours. J.C. Ryle puts it best, the Christian professor who begins to persecute God's people and take pleasure in worldly society is on the high road to ruin. Friend, is that you? Repent and believe in Christ and you too will be saved. Remain faithful, my friend, because of your responsibility to do the will of God. This is what Jesus concludes with there in verses 47 through 48. The servant who knew his master will but did not get ready or act accordingly will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone, here's the point, he he draws it in, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friend, do you understand that every time you read your Bible, there's a greater accountability because you're informing your mind and now you are responsible? That's why we should never hear sermons passively. We should never sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word passively. What I mean by that is when you hear the Word of God taught, you are then accountable to that Word. You will answer to Jesus. And and Jesus seems to paint a picture that there are different levels of punishment and different levels of blessing. And you and I are in a place of responsibility. With greater knowledge comes greater accountability. Our God is a just God. The judgment that He will exact on us will be exactly what we deserve for our rebellion against Him. If we do not repent and trust in Christ, we will face exactly what we deserve. No less and no more. It will be fair. Brothers and sisters, our responsibility is not to measure the time, to seek to somehow calculate the exact timing of Jesus' return, but to remain faithful, trusting that He will return in in a moment. Our responsibility then is to, to not interpret whether or not we are living in the end times. You are, and the church has, for 2,000 years. When Christ descended into heaven, it began the clock, if you were, ticking down to His return. Friend, this passage serves as an encouragement to your faithfulness that you will be rewarded for your steadiness. You will be rewarded eternally. But if you are lazy and just do the bare minimum to get by, you will be rewarded. Now I want you to think for just a moment before we move on to our final point. If you are lazy and just do what you need to do to get by, you will be rewarded as such in eternity. And when that time comes, there's no do-overs. So you better be doing now. Working hard. How will you serve Christ today, grow today, 
It is a reminder that how we live today matters for that great day. What you do today matters. Remain faithful. Pursue Christ. Treasure Him above all else and you will be rewarded. This is why we must work hard and diligently and faithfully. For if we do not, we will be punished. Lastly, we ought to expect division. It's quite interesting that Jesus goes from what we've just considered into this division. I've not come to give peace, but division. The kingdom of God, we are told, naturally divides. Jesus is saying here that he did not come to start a quilting group or an encouragement group or a happy place group or an optimism class, something that makes you really happy and feel good, but rather to rain down fire from heaven. What a picture. That he came to rain down judgment. It is a reminder that Jesus' ministry was twofold. It was both judgment and salvation that he brought. His ministry was marked by this. As we've read throughout, there were people who accepted it and people who rejected it. And this has been our own experience in our very lives. There are those who hear the Word and believe, and there are those who hear the Word and reject it. The problem is not the Word. The problem is the people. So often we think that the problem why people don't repent and believe is because of our means. Oh, we don't do an altar call, so therefore Christians can't be saved, or people can't be saved. Friend, what did they do for 1,800 years before there were such things as an altar call? I mean, clearly God was still saving people without those means, right? We need to be careful that we don't think that, oh, our evangelism, we need to train and do more evangelism. Perhaps so. But it's not our method that needs to be adjusted. Friend, it's people's hearts that need to be transformed. That's what we need to guard against. We see here the purpose of Jesus' ministry was both to bring judgment but also salvation. This is the point Jesus makes so clear, isn't it? I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it be kindled. He seems quite excited about judgment, doesn't he? He has lived now for 30 plus years in the sewage of man's rebellion. All around he sees the brokenness of a perfect world that he created. The judgment that Jesus would rain down was to fall like drops of blood upon his own head. He was condemned in the place of sinners. This is the baptism that Jesus refers to there in verse 50. To be baptized means to be immersed, to go under the water. And on Calvary's cross, he was fully immersed in the Father's wrath against his sin, against our sin rather, because of our iniquities. It is a reminder that his ministry, but in what way is he the great divider? What is in this way that you either choose Jesus or you reject Jesus? And he gives the illustration of the home. This isn't to be taken literally, but it is experientially lived out. How many homes are represented here today that this has been your experience That when you chose to follow Christ, you lost your family. 
that when you sought to live faithfully, you faced rejection and ridicule and persecution because of your beliefs. This has been my own experience and perhaps your own as well. That when you seek to be on the right side of history, you're actually on the wrong side of history. Even our secular world knows there are only two sides. There is no middle way. There is no fence to be ridden. You're either for God or you're against God. And the question that Jesus presents to us here is whose side are you on? We ought to expect division. We ought not to be surprised by division. This is a discouraging picture, but one I believe that is meant to encourage along our journey. Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary at the thought of division. I'm not thinking here of division in, in the church, but division among the world. The world will continue to rebel against Jesus. This we know. Division in the church is a cancer to be avoided. We ought to work towards the unity of the church. But, but unity in the world is impossible apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will never happen. Tom Schreiner, I think, is helpful here. He writes, If family members turn against God or have never turned to Him, and we side with them to please them, we are siding against Jesus. The Lord gives grace, for there is nothing sweeter and more delightful than knowing Jesus. We are not to be, we are rather, we are not to make our families an object of idolatry. Families are wonderful, he says, but we are prepared to meet Jesus only if, his, if He is first in our hearts. Now, how have you made a family an idol and laid aside convictions in order just to get along? There may be here, rather there may be those then that undermine the truth in the name of unity. This is what Jesus is warning against. Those that lay aside theological truths in order for greater unity. Friend, we see this in mainline denominations all over our great country. Laying aside theological convictions in order to be unified with a broken culture. Friend, there will be division, and we must guard against a desire for unity among so-called Christians that sacrifice truth. We must never sacrifice the truth in the name of unity. J.C. Ryle, 200 years ago, faced this same challenge in Britain, and he writes this, let us beware of unscriptural expectations. If we expect to see people of one heart and one mind before they are converted, we shall continually be disappointed. Thousands of well-meaning persons nowadays are continually crying out for more unity among Christians. He goes on to write, to attain this, they are ready to sacrifice almost anything and to throw overboard even sound doctrine, if by doing so they can secure peace. Such people would do well to remember that even gold may be brought to dear, too dear and that peace is useless, useless if it is purchased at the expense of truth. 
Friend, we must never, ever expend the truth in the name of unity. We must never change the doctrines of the church in order to be acceptable in society. That is a dangerous road. To change the morality of the church in order to match the growing sinfulness and wickedness of our society is a death nail to the church. We have ceased to be a church when we go against both doctrine and conscience. And so we must guard against this by expecting division among people. But the question remains, are you ready? Are you ready to to meet the Lord? Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope to prepare you in this way by believing this truth, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God created you to live in relationship with Him. You're accountable to Him because He is your Creator. But you rebelled against Him, choosing to live life your way rather than His way. This is what the Bible calls sin. And God dealt with man's sinful rebellion, not by sweeping away our sin, but by sending His Son to die the death you and I deserve. And Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died the death we deserve on Calvary's cross, there taking upon Himself the sin that every one of us have ever committed. And we are told in the Bible that He raised was raised from the dead three days later for our justification. And if you will repent of your sins, stop living your way, and start living God's new way through Christ, you too can be saved. Friend, this truth is not only for the unbeliever, but for the believer alike. This is how we prepare. By being ready, by remaining faithful, and expecting trouble along our journey. Let us, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expect it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Friend, let us live our lives with such expectation and anticipation of the Lord's return. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to guard against weariness along this journey. Let us not be sleepy this morning, but awaken ourselves, pick ourselves up, remain faithful, prepare for your return, this great celebration that we shall all feast upon, this consummation, and celebrate the coming kingdom. Aid us, we pray, along our journey, Holy Spirit. Let us not grow weary as we see the division around us. But continue to entrust ourselves to a God who is good and right, who will make all things clear in the end. We pray this for your glory and our good in Christ. Amen.